0: Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's word will be a blessing to you. We're in Revelation chapter number three this evening and we're going to look at the church at Laodicea. And what do you say? About Laodicea. Well, we're going to find out what Jesus said about Laodicea here in just a few minutes. It was about six or seven months ago that Batova and I made some visits on a. He got nervous all of a sudden. Wake up, Batova. All right, uh, we were making visits on a Thursday night uh, to a few different places and to a few different people, and it was getting a little bit later in the evening. We were both hungry, and so we said, "You know, where do you want to eat?" And uh, because we're both men, we decided quickly uh, that we were going. Okay, anyway, but moving on, uh, we uh, we decided we were going to go, yes, it, Bethany's already striking that from the recording, but uh, we decided we're going to go to BFC. You ever seen that in Brockton, Brockton or Boston Fried Chicken? There's a couple locations uh, of it out there, and we said we always wanted to stop there, so let's go ahead and stop at uh, Boston Fried Chicken, and we did so, and we ordered. I got chicken, and he got chicken, and I think fries and a drink or something, and we were both eating, and If I was to describe the food, in fact, we said afterwards what the food was like. You know, know, how did you feel about the food? And he asked me how I felt about the food. I said, you know what, if I could make a slogan for BFC and the food, I said, I think this is what it would be. BFC, it's food. That was the best thing I could say about it. It it wasn't bad. There was nothing really wrong with it. But it also wasn't really good either. Like, there was nothing memorable about it. There was nothing offensive about it. It was just kind of there. And that was the best thing that I possibly could say about Boston fried chicken. You know, if we were to take a Boston fried chicken in the Bible, it would be the church at Laodicea. Why would that be? Because, well, it just was kind of there. What do you say about the church? Well, they're there. They're open. They're having service. Well, well. what's the really great qualities about the church? Yep, it's a church, absolutely. Well, what's wrong with the church? Well, it's, 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 it's church, yes siree. There are people going to church. There just wasn't really much to say about this lukewarm church that's here in Revelation chapter number three. Now, there were some things about it that were not good, but when you compared it to the world, it was just kind of there. And when I think of what we should be as a church and what any biblical church should be, we don't just want to exist for the sake of existing. Well, what's the thing you could say about Liberty Church? Well, it's church. I would hope there would be a lot more that could be said about our church than just, well, yep, it's a church. They, they got a building. There's people that show up. Uh, they have Bible time and they sing songs. It's church. Well, we want to be more than that. And so here in Revelation chapter 3, Laodicea gives us a little bit of a roadmap of what we want to avoid with this lukewarm church in uh, Laodicea in Asia Minor. So we'll begin in verse number 14, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter where it says this, And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, You see that right there? I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now you don't need to be a Bible scholar to understand when Jesus says he'd like to spew you out of his mouth. That's not a good thing, is it? So going on, it says, Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and, excuse me, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him, and will sup with him, and to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and him sit down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And thus ends the final of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Well, as we've done with the last few churches that we've looked at, it helps us to get a little bit of historical background of Laodicea, what the city was and what the church was before we get into our text tonight. And Laodicea was a city of enormous wealth. And I feel like there's a few churches that we have said that of of these seven churches, but Laodicea would have exceeded the wealth of all of the other churches. It was a city that was very well known for its wealth. In fact, it was known for three things, one commentator said, finance, fashion, and pharmaceuticals. It was known for three things, finance, fashion and pharmaceuticals one commentator said this Laodicea was also a noted commercial center and some of its goods were exported all over the world it's frequently noted that Laodicea prided itself on the financial wealth an extensive textile industry and a popular eye salve which was exported around the world William Barclay who is a commentator and historian we've referenced several times in the book of Revelation so far said this about their wealth After an earthquake devastated the region in A.D. 60, Laodicea refused imperial Roman help to rebuild the city, successfully relying on their own resources. They didn't need any help from the government. They said, we have what we need right here within Laodicea to rebuild. They didn't need outside help. They didn't ask for it, and they didn't want it. Laodicea was too rich to accept help from anyone. Uh, Tacticus, the Roman historian, tells us Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us now near the church at Laodicea maybe about 10 miles away depends on who you read I've seen a little bit of variation between that but about 10 miles away from the church at Laodicea was at the church at Colossus which is where we get the book of Colossians so nearby Laodicea, they would have had a sister church that would have been a very good example for them. So, in fact, Colossians 4, 16 tells us, and when this epistle is read among you, meaning the epistle of Colossians, uh, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And likewise, ye read the epistle from Laodicea. And so what we realize is this church at Colossus that was nearby Laodicea, Paul had written epistles to both of those churches, the one to the colossians was preserved by the inspiration of God the 1 to laodicea that paul wrote was not preserved for us but they both had letters written to their own churches and paul says this you're so close to one another read your own letters but then when you're done with them swap them and you read the church the the, the letter that went to the other church they were sister churches and coloss from everything we know was a church that was very good in many ways and so Laodicea would have had a good example of what church should be like in their neighbor church there in uh, Colossus. But with all of these things going on, the great financial wealth they had, what a, a prominent city they were, the good example that they had from another sister church, with all of this, the church Laodicea here in Revelation chapter number three is the only one of the seven to receive no commendation. Meaning this, God had nothing good to say about them. Now listen, when people have nothing good to say about you, it could be that people's perceptions of things are skewed because that's kind of the way we are sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we don't see things with the proper lens. But when Jesus looks at you and says, I don't see anything good in your church, you know you're in a bad place. And that's what happened to the church at Laodicea. Even Sardis, who we looked at a few churches ago, didn't have a lot good said about them, but at least in the church of Sardis, Jesus says there's a small remnant within that's holding fast. In Laodicea, there wasn't even any of that. Is They were cold, they were compromised, they were far away from God. And it's interesting, Laodicea, the name Laodicea, Laodicea rather literally means the voice of the people. I think that's so fitting. In fact, it may be one of the most fitting names you'll find in all the Bible because coming from that church was not the voice of God. Coming forth was not the voice of of the gospel of Jesus Christ all you see when we read here in Revelation chapter 3 is the voice of the people it's the people of Laodicea that seem to be the ones who were calling the shots so with all of that as we've looked at with the other churches before before we even get to the three points uh, of the commendation and the complaint and the charge we see that Jesus gives his bona fides at the beginning of every uh, at the beginning of every letter and he does so to be able to highlight a certain part of his character that's important for that church to understand. And we see that here in verse number 14, where it says, under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things at the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so Jesus introduces himself in three different ways. He calls himself the amen. Now think about that. Amen is something that we say in church. Well, amen is something sometimes some people say in church, but amen is something that people say in church, whether it's during the preaching or at the end of a uh, prayer or whatnot. But sometimes we forget that that word amen has a meaning and that word means literally so be it. That's why if you say amen during preaching, you're literally saying, I agree with that. So be it. Uh, If you actually break it down to its very simple etymology, it literally means this truth. It would be like if you heard preaching and you said amen, it's like saying truth, truth. You say, well, why is that important? Well, It's important because other people understand that what the preacher is saying is truth. It's encouraging uh, if you do that, and it encourages me uh, when you do that. But certainly at the end of a prayer, if someone's praying, someone says amen, and we all agree in our hearts with amen. Why? Because we're all saying what that person is praying is truth. But what does Jesus do? He calls himself the amen, meaning this, so be it. He's truth. I mean, could Jesus be anything else but truth? He's the very embodiment of truth. As I've said before, he does not just display the characteristics of truth. He is actually truth embodied. Let God be true and every man a liar, as we said here before. So he calls himself the amen to the Laodiceans. He also calls himself the faithful and true witness, meaning this. This is not just a repeat of what he just said. He is the truth who will remain true to the Godhead, meaning this, that you know, if someone is being true, it doesn't necessarily only mean that they are telling the truth. But someone who is being true is being loyal. They're being steadfast, uh, a faithful and true friend. We could say is someone who's going to stick by your side. Well, Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness. Meaning this, he is going to witness uh, and be a witness of the truth of the Godhead—Father, Son. And Holy Ghost and they are going to be together there will be no separation between them he is truth and he testifies of the truth not just of himself but of father and Holy Ghost as well but he also calls himself the beginning of the creation of God now there would be some who would look at a verse like that verse number 14 of chapter 3 and say oh pastor do you see what it says it says Jesus Christ is created now you could look at that verse that way and maybe get the idea that Jesus was not God, but maybe he was a demigod, that he was created by the Father, like the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons would say. However, here's the problem with having that type of doctrine is that you can take one little verse that might suggest one thing, but then when you take the volumes of verses that show that Jesus Christ is not created, but rather the creator, you say, wow, I want to take this verse that maybe I don't understand exactly what it's saying. I want to interpret it with all of these verses that I do understand what it's saying. You and I both know Jesus Christ wasn't created. He always was. Why? Because he was part of the Godhead. Again, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John 1.3 says this, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made That was made meaning this that Jesus was not the created Jesus was the creator And so when we look at this and it says in verse number 14 uh, That he is the beginning of the creation of God. It it literally means this creation began with his involvement He was right there from the very beginning It wasn't that the father started and Jesus just swooped in at the end And then the Holy Spirit kind of just did his thing to kind of bring it all together But that father son and Holy Ghost were all active in the creation from the very beginning why because the three were one and they are one today so Jesus says to these Laodiceans he says I am the Amen I am the faithful and true witness I am the beginning of the creation of God here's what he's saying I am truth and there's no compromise is there any compromise in Jesus Christ I mean there's none if there's any kind of compromise it's in us it's not in Jesus but Jesus is showing that he is truth without compromise for one specific reason because the Laodiceans compromisers he's showing that he is without compromise because he says you Laodiceans are people that have made great compromises in what I've called you to be as believers and as a church so with all of that being said we jump into our outline tonight and the first part will be very very short and that is its commendation are you ready Number two, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's about that short. Its commendation was that there was none. And again, as I mentioned before, as people, sometimes we often see the very best of it people and we're blind to the things that are not good. Or sometimes we only see the very worst in people and we're blind to the good qualities that they might have. That's the way we are as human beings. And because we only see certain things because we're not, omniscient, we're not omnipresent, we look at things through our point of view, and sometimes that point of view does not always reflect truth. But here's the thing, when God says, I don't see anything good about your church, there's no mistake about it. There is not, well, Jesus, I mean, come on, really, I mean, you're not looking at this, you're not giving us a fair shake, you're you're not looking at this right. No, if Jesus says there's no commendation, you're in a bad place, Uh, you're in a bad way. And it reminds us that we could be as a church and I'm not saying necessarily we as Liberty Baptist church, although certainly it can happen to us, but any church can get into a place where they are meeting regularly. They're doing what seems to be good and right, but because their hearts are so far from God, there's nothing good that can be said about the church. That's a scary thing that you're literally just playing church. It's like Boston fried chicken. It's food. What is it? It's church. I mean, what a kind of place to be, to think the institution that God ordained, that Jesus Christ shed his blood for, Ephesians chapter number five, for us to be at could just be something so blase. could be something that just existed. Well, we don't want that, and we certainly want to learn from the bad example of the Laodiceans. So that being said, that's it for number one. There's nothing else to say other than to say there was no commendation, and the amen and faithful and true witness could not have made a mistake about that. Number two, it's complaint. Buckle up and get ready because we've got a lot to talk about here in section number two. We'll take all that time that we budgeted for section one that we didn't use, and we're going to use it in section number two because there's plenty of things that were wrong with the church at Laodicea. The first thing that I see in verse number 14 is this. They had no claim. They had no claim. Look again at verse number 14, and there's something very unique about this that you may not have caught by reading it the first time it says this and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Now that in and of itself does not seem very unusual. Does it under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans? But if you will just go back to chapter number two and verse number one, I want you to remember that phrase very carefully. And then let's look at a couple different verses. Look at verse number one of chapter two "Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus now look at verse number eight and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna now look at verse number 12 and to the angel of the church in Pergamos now look at the church look at verse number 18 and unto the angel of the church in Thyatira all right go to chapter 3 and verse number 1 and unto the angel of the church in Sardis okay now jump down if you will to verse number 7 and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now go back to our verse in our text in verse number 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Did you notice by reading the first six and then going back to the seventh and last one again, the slight difference in the phrases and how the churches were described. The first six were called the churches in the city but the church of the Laodiceans was literally addressed as the church of the Laodiceans. Now, meaning this, whose church did it belong to? I would suggest that the first six belonged to Jesus Christ and the last one really had ownership within of themselves. Could we put it this way? They had made church about themselves and not about Jesus Christ. They had no claim to be called the church that God had called them to be. In fact, if you were to do a study of the epistles, and I've done this before, but if you were to start uh, in Romans and you were to go all the way through the epistles that were directed to churches, every single church that was uh, written to was addressed in the same way as the first six here, with the exception of the church at Thessalonica. First Thessalonians and second Thessalonians addresses the churches as the church of the Thessalonians, but it continues on In those and says which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ so even the Thessalonians even though it's called the Church of the Thessalonians I would say we still know that it belonged to God because well one that was an exceptional church when you read those those epistles but the qualifier of which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ tells us they were doing something right but here is the church of the Laodiceans and they weren't in Christ in fact they were into themselves They weren't in Christ, they were into themselves. This is our church, this is what we're gonna do. By the way, this is one of the reasons that we have to be careful in what we do doctrinally. This has to be, one of the reasons we have to be careful what we do even with the ministries that we start and we maintain because we have to do not what feels good to us, we have to do what honors God and His Word, and when the Word speaks, we follow the Word. When the Word does not seem to speak to our specific situation, then we make application as best we can, and we pray over that to make sure we have the Lord's mind about those things. Why? Because simply put, this is not the Church of the Eastonites. This is the Church of God in Easton. You see the difference. This is not the Church of the Eastonites or the Tauntonites or the Brocktonites or uh, the Stoughtonites or the Bostonites. All right, so or any of those things. Uh, this is the Church of God in Easton. And that is a difference that is worth remembering that it's not just semantics but do you think that God accidentally labeled the church of the Laodiceans a little bit different than the other ones without any cause? No, I think it was there for a reason to give us an example to realize one of the first problems that this church had. So first of all its complaint they had no claim. But I also see this Uh, they had no certainty. They had no certainty. Uh, Look at verses number 15 and 16 again. You might be familiar with these verses already. I know thy works, that thou wert neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of thy mouth. One commentator said this, has there been a greater curse upon the earth than empty religion? Is there any soul harder to reach than the one who has just enough of Jesus to think they have enough? The church of Laodicea exemplifies empty religion and tax collectors and harlots were more open to Jesus than the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's true, isn't it? That those who seemed to be very cold from God were the ones that Jesus was able to reach and it was the ones who were lukewarm. Oh, they had the vestiges of religion, but they were very far from God. Those were the ones that seemed to be the farthest actually away from God. And when we look at this fact that they were neither cold nor hot, We can look at it a couple different ways. One way we can look at it is this, is that cold and hot water have very good uses, don't they? Hot water has good uses and cold water has good uses. But if someone hands you a glass of lukewarm water, how does that taste? Well, it doesn't taste very good, does it? It's uh, just at a restaurant just a few days ago, and they handed me a glass. There was no ice in it, and I could tell it was Boston's finest tap water. Uh, And I love that dirty water. And uh, so uh, there it was, and uh, it was kind of like, you know, I can't do much with this. I would rather it was hot or cold. It just was kind of there. And so we could look at it that way, that there just wasn't much use for them because they weren't hot and they weren't cold, and both of those have uses. Or it could be, as I was just mentioning, the fact that if they were hot, on fire for the Lord, God could use that church to be able to do what God's called them to do. Or even if they were cold, maybe if they were people that were cold to God, God could still use them to further his ministry. For example, the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, he was Saul. Would you say he was cold or hot to the gospel when he was Saul before the road to Damascus? I would say he was sub-zero, wasn't he? Uh, before because he was persecuting the church he assented to the stoning of Stephen and then he acquired letters from the Sanhedrin to not just persecute the church in Jerusalem but then to go to far-flung areas of Judea and beyond to take those who had left from Jerusalem and started splinter churches from, or sister churches, probably a better way of putting it, from the church of Jerusalem, and to go go to exterminate, and I use that term literally, to exterminate those churches and the people within those churches. That's what his plan was to do. But God used that very cold-hearted man to do something that the church in Jerusalem hadn't done at that point, which was to go into Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth to share the gospel. Because isn't that what he said to do in Acts 1-8? He said, go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And they had done a pretty good job in going through Jerusalem and Judea, you know, the area right around them. They had not really spread the gospel as they should to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Could we put it this way? To those who weren't Jews. They hadn't done a great job. But it was a cold-hearted man that God used to be able to further the gospel. And so it's almost as if God is saying this, it's the lukewarm Christian that is the one that causes the most damage to the cause of Christ because at least the cold-hearted one could maybe bring persecution or maybe bring hardship to those who are believers and encourage them because what are the times of the greatest growth in Christian history? It's typically typically the times of greatest persecution by the cold hardest of people. But he says, I can use the hard hearted ones or the uh, the, the, the hot hearted ones, not the hard hearted ones, the hot hearted ones. And I can use the cold ones to further the purpose of the God. But those lukewarm ones, man, they're just there. And by the way, you know, one of the worst testimonies of Christ in a workplace or in a school is someone who says they love Jesus, but then have nothing to do with Jesus. Because the message is so mixed it's hard to even understand. I have someone that's in our apartment complex every day. When I walk uh, the dog around the apartment complex, uh, there's someone that has a, a cross on one side of their pickup truck, and on the other side has one of the most obscene uh, bumper stickers I've ever seen. On the same, and I want to, I want to just stand out in front of it and meet the person, so I can talk to him and say, "What were you thinking from this side to this side?" I, I don't understand. You, you know what? I, I look at that and say, "What are we doing here?" Could, could we put it this way? Neither cold nor hot. What does God say about this? He'll spew you out. You literally vomit. I mean, if we were to go into the Greek and find that, that's, that's what it is. is he said, I want to spew you out, I want to vomit you out. There was no certainty that was there. Lukewarm Christianity. Lukewarm Christianity. Enough Christianity to say you're Christian, but not enough to actually do anything with it is a great harm to the cause of Christ believe it or not Charles Spurgeon 150 years ago talked about this 150 years ago he talked about this here's a few in a sermon he literally called an earnest warning against lukewarmness he described the lukewarm church and this is just a few examples they have prayer meetings but there are a few present for they like quiet evenings at home When more attend the meetings, they are still very dull, for they do their praying very deliberately and are afraid of getting too excited. They are content to have all things done decently and in order, but vigor and zeal are considered to be vulgar. They may have schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, and all sorts of agencies, but they might as well be without them for no energy is displayed and no good comes of them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church if the chief quality of the pillars is to be standing still and exhibit no motion or emotion. The pastor does not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel, and he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be shining a light of eloquence, but he certainly is not a burning light of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. Everything is done in a half-hearted, listless, dead, and alive way. And or not, on and on, 150 years ago, 150 years ago, he's saying this. Well, we would think that would have been like, the height of Christianity in London in the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle preaching to thousands of people, but yet he said there's a lukewarm element that's out there and we must be careful. And I wanna say this when I talk about lukewarmness, it's not just the excitement level, or can we put it this way? The volume level. Because just because the volume goes up doesn't necessarily mean the spirit's going up. And just because the excitement level is there, wow, This is not something we artificially try to create. It's just something when we earnestly seek the Lord with a pure heart that wants to serve the Lord, that there comes a fervency with that, that not necessarily is tied to volume and it's not necessarily tied to tears and not that there's anything wrong with volume at the right time or tears at the right time or, or, or uh, uh, excitement at the right time. But it, if we put it this way? It doesn't have to be manufactured. It just is because it's an outgrowth of a heart that's hot burning hot for God. This charge of lukewarmness would have hit very close to these folks. And the reason why is because of all Laodicea had, you know what they didn't have? Their own water supply. They had no water supply of their own. And this is where I love the Bible is is that the Lord is so thorough about so many things. There are no mistakes in the Bible. We know that, but I mean, not just the, the literal errors of it, but the words are so precisely put in there which is why you don't want to tinker with the words, this lukewarmness. See, Laodicea had not their own water supply. They had to pipe in their water, if you will, from six miles away. It was said that that hot spring that they received the water from would have cooled down, but it would not have cooled down enough to be cold and refreshing. So can you imagine if you've ever gotten a really cold glass of refreshing water maybe uh from from somewhere and it's, it's just so good or you ever gotten water from the hose and it's been sitting outside for about you know a month you know the difference don't you, you and you got to wait the, the water go through until you can get down to where it is of course you probably shouldn't drink through hoses anymore but uh we all did and we all lived right so but anyway we wouldn't recommend those kids back there do it but uh we we're all fine i mean we're, we're good so anyway um but uh uh That lukewarm water, it's like, oh, this is disgusting. But that's the way Jesus is literally speaking to them where they are. They had lukewarm water. And he says, you know that lukewarm water you drink? You're that water. And you know how you don't like it? I don't like it because you are not cold. You're not hot. You're just kind of there. So they had no certainty but I also see this they had no commitment they had no commitment trying to go quickly here look at verse number 17 because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked they thought they had so much but spiritually they had nothing they had big bank accounts they had great wardrobes they had wonderful houses but spiritually they were bankrupt of what God had called them to be He says, I counsel thee uh, to buy of me, of Jesus, gold tried in the fire. Meaning this, you know, a little bit of persecution would do you well, he's telling them. A little bit of the fire would help purify who you are. Gold uh, tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be that thou mayest see. Do you remember when I was talking to you earlier about William Barclay how he said one of the pharmaceuticals that they were so well known for was a famous eye salve? And again, not an accident. That Jesus said this. He says, "You know that eye salve that you're so fond of and that makes your city so much money? That's what you won't need." He says, "But I'm not talking about a physical eye salve to help your physical eyes. He says, "You need a spiritual eye salve to help your spiritual eyes see." He says because you're seeing things incorrectly, you're looking at things through dollar signs. You're looking at things through spreadsheets. If I was to update this today, you're looking at things through the stock market going up and down. He says, but you need to clean your eyes off and see things the way that Jesus Christ sees them. I would say this, that Jesus Christ is more concerned about the eternal than he is that the stock market went up or down today. Now, Jesus is involved in all things. I'm not saying that he's, he's abandoned some areas of life or anything like that. We, you understand that. But I'm talking about the things of eternal value and good. He says, this is what you need to focus on. But you're so focused on these other things. Get that eyesight. He says, you think you have white raiment. He says, but, but you're, you're unclothed the way you are. You're naked. He says... You need the right kind of clothing. He says, you need to have that clothing that I have clothed you with. Uh, Much like Adam and Eve, when they were on their own, what were they? They were unclothed. They were naked and they were ashamed. Uh, But he clothed them and he clothed them in a way uh, that was different than what he's speaking of here. But it's the same idea. He's going to give them dignity, true dignity. He was going to give them a covering, a true covering, not whatever they thought that they had. And then finally, just going quickly, verse 20, they had no commitment. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. This is one of the more well-known verses in all of the Bible. You'll hear often. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And oftentimes when you hear this verse, it's usually spoken at the end of a sermon, compelling sinners to come to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I will say, could that be used in that way? It could. I certainly don't think it would be twisting the scriptures to say that Jesus... Is knocking on the door of the heart of the unsaved, trying to compel them to be saved. I see that could be a proper application. But is that the primary application that we find here in Revelation chapter three? The answer is no. He's actually talking to an entire church. And listen, when you think about this, in some ways it's even more sad. Because before someone saved, Jesus is on the outside wanting to come in, right? But imagine a church that Jesus Christ and he says this, I'm outside and why won't you let me in open the door now that's sad there are times here I, I lock the door sometimes when I work during the day and it's not because I don't want anyone to come in uh, a lot of times it, the wind will catch the door um, if it's a windy day and uh, and I, I keep thinking someone's coming in and no one comes in and it and, it, uh, and so I, I will lock the door but there have been times even the last couple of weeks there's a couple of, of you guys that, that are, are here now that did this I can hear the door go I can hear the shaking of the door and then whoever it is gives up and they go back to their car, or their van and go. Well, if I hear that, you know what I'm going to do? I, I get out of the, the chair. I don't just, I don't come out from under the desk and say, Oh, oh never mind. I'm back under the desk again, hiding. No, I, I, I go to open the door and let you in because that's what you wanted was to be able to come in and you needed me to let you in. Uh, could you imagine not? a church member trying to get in on a random day. But could you imagine Jesus Christ knowing that a church was meeting and the illustration that he gives is this, I'm standing on the outside and you've locked me out. And I'm not going to come in. Now, could he force himself in? Well, well, sure he can. He he has all power and all authority. Will he force himself in? No. You know what he's going to do? He's going to knock. And you know what many churches do if they're not careful and what the Laodiceans did? They made enough noise on the inside to be able to drown out the noise of Jesus Christ. They were so full of what they were doing, they refused to hear or, if they heard, to heed the knocking of Jesus Christ. And the one who established the church, the one who they said they were ministering to and for, was the one who was on the outside and all the people on the inside. And you wonder why it was called the church of the Laodiceans and not the church at Laodicea. If verse number 20 doesn't illustrate that, I don't know what does. They were lukewarm. What's the charge? What's the charge? That's verse number 19. Before we get to the charge, he, he Jesus says three things. As many as I love, what does he do? You know, sometimes you have to remember that if you have a lot of bad to say to somebody, you do need to give some positive reinforcement as well. Now, Jesus has just given them all these verses where he says, you've done wrong, you've done wrong, you've done wrong, I'd like to vomit you out. But he says this, I want you to know why I'm telling you this. It's because I love you. Do you realize that if you have the chastening hand of God upon your life, even tonight, If it feels like the Holy Spirit is working on you in certain areas of your life and you feel like God hates you, why is God bringing this to me? Why is the Holy Spirit reminding me of this? Why can't I just be left alone? Can you just be reminded tonight of this? God does it, not because he hates you, but he does it because he loves you. See, if Jesus didn't love the church of Laodicea, he wouldn't have told him any of that. He would have said, just do what you want to do. I'll stand outside, but do what you want to do, you know, whatever, I don't care. No, he cared enough to say, I want you to know I love you. But he also said this, I, as many as I love, I rebuke. He said, I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong and I will chasten. That means I'll punish you when I tell you what you've done is wrong and you won't get it right. But what is his charge to them? Be zealous, meaning this, get warm up, <laughs> heat up and repent. You need to be zealous. They weren't zealous for anything. They were just kind of blobs sitting in church. But he says, be zealous and repent. In Revelation uh, 3, verse 20, there's a famous painting by a man named William Holman Hunt, which is called The Light of the World. You, You can look it up later. It depicts Jesus standing outside a door with a light in his hand. He is knocking on the door. When that painting was first finished, a man looked at it and commented to the painter, you made a mistake. And Hunt asked, where is the mistake? The critic said, you forgot to paint a handle on the outside of the door. And Hunt responded, there is no mistake. The handle is on the inside. Jesus knocks, but those on the inside must open the door. I like that. Hey, Jesus is knocking. It's up to us to open the door. How do we make sure we're not lukewarm Christians? Can I I just give you a a couple of, uh, of very practical helps? that will help us, because we must constantly guard ourselves from cold-hearted Christianity. And that doesn't mean just whipping ourselves up into an artificial frenzy. That's not what I'm talking about. But to be warm and zealous for the things of God. Can I encourage you to pr- pray big prayers? Pray big prayers. You know, sometimes our prayers are so small that are, I remember uh, uh, Brother Chapman saying this last year. Our prayers are so small that a rich man can answer them. You, you want to get some encouragement from the Lord? I'm not just talking about praying outlandish prayers for the sake of praying it, but give God these things that are on your heart. And as he starts to answer them in the way that only he can, you know what it's going to do? It's going to lend some excitement to you. What about this? See the fields white unto harvest. It'll increase the burden It'll increase the zealousness. You know, the last week or two, just going down to Boston, and this has happened this way for the last three to two years, really, two and a half years that I've been at BMC, but especially the last year or the last week or so, as I had to take AJ. There are so many people that are hurting in downtown Boston, and you think of, of, of the Methadone Mile, but then just one block away, you have $5 million brownstones within one block. I mean, it's that stark. And it would, it, would, it would help a lot of churches that take missions trips, not to go down the Freedom Trail, but to walk down Mass Ave. And you know what it'll do? It'll get some of that lukewarmness out. Sharing the gospel, giving a track to someone, going out of your way to speak to someone about the gospel. That'll warm you up. Church worship can become ordinary. Can I help you with this? Maybe before you come to church. And this is hard on Wednesday night because some of you just coming on Wednesday night, you're coming from work, God bless you. And just the fact you came from work is a victory. I know that, and I'm thankful that you are here. But maybe on a Sunday morning before you leave, just taking five minutes say, Lord, prepare my heart for the service today. When I sing the hymns, don't let me just sing them just for the sake of singing them. Let me think about the words. Let me think about what they mean. When the time of worship comes, let me, let me truly worship you let those let those verses really speak to me in a way. When, when the preaching comes, Lord, let me be ready. Let me your Holy Spirit speak to me in such a way that it's not just another service. It's not just another day at church. I was just thinking about this. 10 years here, 1,500 services I've been here for. Somewhere around 1,300 or so messages. And somebody's like, now you know why you're so tired. Some of you, uh, so that's why I'm tired. But you know, it can become routine after a while what if you've been saved for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years? It can become routine. Don't allow the natural tendency of life to become lukewarm to allow that to happen. Lord, help restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, help me remember what it was like when I first got saved. Help me to remember what it was like when I I, I first trusted Christ their Savior. And I'll tell you, the most obvious thing from our text is that sinful practices unconfessed will cause lukewarmness in our life in our church. Because the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And that when we try to live for God with one foot here, but then we try to live with the world with other foot here, we can't really be fervent for God in the ways we want to when we've got one foot in the world and we've got one foot in the things of God. Proverbs 26, 20 says this, Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So there where is no tailbearer, the strife ceaseth. Uh, Of course, the second part of that speaking about if no one's willing to gossip, The issue just dies, something that would be good for us to heed as believers and just as people. But I love the beginning part. Where there is no wood, the fire goeth out. You know what you have to do with a fire? You have to stoke it, give it wood. You know what we do in our Christian life? Not artificially, but just remind ourselves, Lord, keep it fresh. Lord, keep me close to you. Lord, help me to remember how excited I was when I first got saved before it became ordinary, before it became routine, Help church to just be exciting, just because I'm in the house of God. I'm hearing the Word of God. God's speaking. His Holy Spirit wants to speak to me tonight. I mean, how amazing is that? That the Holy Spirit of the world wants to talk to you tonight. But we take that as kind of like, oh yeah, it's Wednesday. Yeah, it's Sunday. And I get dressed. I gotta go to church. You know, got some stuff to do afterwards. And you know, maybe we'll come on Sunday night. It's just you know, it's it's. I mean, we've done it before, and we would do it again. But people will sit. For 162 games of Boston Red Sox, to watch the same players hit the same ball around the same field, for and I know I know people that will watch every game on NESN, every single one. And look, I I like the Sox uh, as much as anybody, but I tell you, if people can get excited about that, and then we look at this, well, you know, but it is the Bible. I mean, it's, I mean, it's good, but it's just not like it used to be. It's time we get some ISAV It's time we kind of wash up and say, Lord, help make it fresh for me again. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in his word.